Michael Vaughn one and all, and welcome to the Literary Baptist. We're back again as we podcast through the Silmarillion, a chapter at a time. Uh, and this is the show where we read great literature through uh, the lens of uh, the confessional Baptist, uh, which is what we all are, which is why we're called what we are. Hello, everyone. How are you all this evening? Doing good. Yeah. <laughs> great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so, I, I want to talk about a book I read. Okay, do it. All right, let me put down my sword here. I, that I, I have. <laughs> That's a literal sword that I have in my hands. Um, for no reason. So I read as part of the, you know, twelve book challenge that we have for the year. I had to read something that is post Y two K fiction. I tried to read Zach's Brandon Sanderson, <laughs> and I, I could not do it. I couldn't handle yeah, dude, it. Don't do this to me. No. And it was too hard to understand. So what I went with is a classic of historical fiction. I don't know if it's actually classic, but it's Bernard Cornwell's. Cornwell's. The Archer's Tale is the American hmm. title, and then Harlequin is the British title. Hmm. Uh, I went back and forth between text and audiobook, and the audiobook had the British title. And this physical copy has the American. Huh. <clears throat> um, it takes place during the Hundred Years' War, um, which is fun. Battle of Cressy. Um, what I, I, it's a fun story. Really enjoyed it. A little bit much on the vices. Uh, it's. <laughs> I think he got to keep those he, pages turning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even like blasphemy, it was, there were parts that I did not care for it, but um, I think he tried to write modern people into the past. And a lot of it was like, you know, you hear about people talking about this, but everything's really dirty and terrible. And everybody, it, it's kind of in that vein where it's like, everybody smells terrible everybody's just blaspheming and no one really cares about uh, God or anything. I know war is not a pleasant time. Uh, so I'll give him that. That's an edgy but, opinion. <laughs> yeah. I hope you can back that up. War is unpleasant. <laughs> uh, I'll stand by that. But, um, but, but it was a fun, it was a fun story. Uh, it didn't have like a meaning. Other than maybe, you know, uh, people of all times are basically the same. Um, and so I didn't come away from it thinking, oh, wow, that was a really good book. I came away from it saying, yeah, it was kind of, I enjoyed it some. So uh, he wrote some other books. He wrote, um, I think they're called the Saxon Stories, which then became the TV show, The Last Kingdom. On oh, Netflix. okay. So he's, he's the guy who wrote, and it, so it's basically the same like style as those that TV show, I would say. Uh, but overall, okay. I enjoyed that TV show. Yeah. It was interesting. Well, since since we're doing uh, reviews of our of our reading, uh Zach, what have you been reading? Um <clears throat> I I've been um <laughs> diving into a subgenre of fantasy, which is a lit RPG, which basically is lit RPG. Yeah, I almost thought you said you like you mispronounced light. No, I didn't. Light RPG. <laughs> it's lit lit RPG. Yeah, it's lit, fam. No cap. Yes, lit. No cap. Um. But it's it's basically it's basically video games, um, leveling all the characters all level up and they progress through different quests and things like that. It's just it's not really deep, um, but it's fun. What book is um, it? Well, <laughs> or several books? Are they books? Uh, Are they yeah. stories? No. Well. Uh, I mean, they are 
Uh, <laughs> I don't know what distinction you're. Well, I, I guess I mean short stories. <laughs> no, they're not short stories at all. They're um, <clears throat> the one one series I read is called uh, <clears throat> "He Who Fights Monsters," and the the books aren't even named individually. It's just book one, book two. You know, it's not mm. like, um, and it's not from what I can tell, it's not anywhere close to finish. And I've already read eight books, so it's like. Wow. This could really go on a very long time with how the story progresses and how many different things are happening and possible. It's pretty wild. Um, but every uh, I've started three series like that, and they they all are are kind of like that. They're they seem to be very long and no end in sight. So um, as far as entertainment value, it's great. Because you've got stuff coming, but it doesn't have a whole lot of, I would say, literary value. Um, it's it's more entertainment, I guess. <clears throat> there are some good moments of dialogue and introspection from characters, but uh, I mean, most of it is kind of cheesy. <clears throat> um, it's more about um, the uh, the action than the. Um, than any kind of <laughs> dialogue. <laughs> um, also, um, got um, I think it was a set of five books from John Bunyan, um, free on Kindle. So mm. that's cool. Uh, started his collection of poetry. I haven't gotten very far in that. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking it'll be mostly um, him like, but <clears throat> I'm cool with that. So, um, and also a biography on Bunyan that I've started. I haven't gotten very far in either <laughs> of those, but started. <laughs> so. Cool. So you're you're heading into sort of a Bunyan focus in the yeah, uh, in the challenge. Yeah, yeah. thought it'd be kind of cool to focus on maybe one guy on a little bit, but. Very Baptist of you. Yes. <laughs> Maddie, what have you been reading so far? Or maybe the better question is, what have you not been reading? <laughs> I have a very large library that is waiting to be read. So a lot. <laughs> I've not been reading a lot. Um, so I recently finished. This doesn't actually check off any of the boxes for our uh, overachiever. But I've already done at least three books that could qualify so far this year for different categories. But Man. this one will... Anyways, it's Tali... it's Taliesin by Stephen R. Lawhead. And it's like an Arthurian fantasy series. Um, and just really well. That's like honestly the first time I've really read anything like this. Probably ever. I've, I've read some things kind of adjacent. In some ways, it's Tolkien-esque, but it's obviously much more modern. But what I do like is that he kind of dives a little bit more into that, like, actual legend of Arthur and and the different pagan beliefs around that, surrounding that, or at least thought of. So I can kind of see, like, hints of that being reflected in Tolkien's writings where he's kind of making his own version of those um, older kind of pagan myths, even in just what we read for this chapter that we're doing today. But it's been really, it was a lot of fun. Like I didn't expect uh, to enjoy it quite as much as I'm usually pretty hesitant about reading newer authors, but I did really enjoy it. And it kind of talk. it starts in Atlantis and also oh it, that's a bold like, move <laughs> yeah it's two stories like kind of coinciding and then eventually they come together like a but great episode of seinfeld <laughs> <laughs> but in atlantis yeah so you've got like the british isles kind of a group there a clan there and then you've got um a main character in atlantis and it deals with like the fall of atlantis and it was just really fascinating. Uh, I think he just did a really good job of kind of making you feel or understand what it might have been like to be alive 
in a pagan culture untouched by Christianity. And he is he is a Christian author, and that does get brought in into play towards the end of the book. But it's just kind of fascinating because we're kind of very much on the flip side of that. We're very Christian, post-Christian. And so it's kind of like, you know, in America, it's built, you know, our virtues and stuff are built on Christian virtues, whether or not people are claiming to be Christian. But it's just it's just interesting to kind of imagine, I guess, what what that was actually like for people. And he does a good job through the characters of kind of making you feel that um, in their own way. So I had a lot of fun. And that was like the first of a series of, I think, five books. So the next one that I started is about Merlin because Merlin gets introduced at the end of the last book. Um, And so now it's about Merlin. So I just started that one. And then... um, I don't know. My kids and I memorized Jabberwocky, the poem last week, and yes, trying to do a little bit more poetry. Swinging that vorpal blade, yeah, yes, yeah. You've got your vorpal sword in hand. Nick, make it go snicker snack. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to know what words do. Right now, this is pretty snicker snack. It might just be a pendulum. (laughs) Oh, that looks pretty snicker snack. Yeah. A plus on the snicker. In the snack. What about you, Lee? Yeah, thank you. My reading has been very spotty. Uh, but um, I had said previously that um, bef- actually before we we publicized the, the reading challenge, um, which is linked in the notes uh, for anybody who wants to uh, check out the the 12 categories. Uh, it's really easy. It's in the it's in the show notes. But uh, I had committed to rereading 1984, which I hadn't read since uh, high school um, with with some folks from church. And so we had our first meeting uh, to discuss because uh, it's it's divided into books as well. Um, so we we read book one and then uh, chatted about that on Sunday uh, as we're recording this. And uh, I had I, there were so many dimensions of that book that I'd forgotten since I I rushed through it in high school. Um, and I, of course, I think you know I've changed as a person obviously since then, and so things things in the book would would stand out differently to me now than they would have then anyway. But the whole um, the whole piece about the the mutability of the past. Uh, stood out really prominently, more even more than the the surveillance aspect, which is kind of the the typical thing we all talk about in 1984. But um, the whole notion of well, actually, like you know, uh, the the word the phrase memory hole uh, came from 1984. Um, the memory hole was a pneumatic tube in the offices of the party that uh, if you got a piece of old information that needed to be changed, you'd write the change, submit it, and then you'd throw the old piece down the memory hole. Uh, and uh, I was like, when when I read that, that was really interesting. Um, but there was a good quote. I wanted to share a quote that I uh, I highlighted in my, it's still my high school copy of 1984. <laughs> I, I found it in my library, which has moved twice, three times since then. Uh, so I, I was glad I still had it. But um, uh, so uh, he, Winston Smith, knew that Oceania had been in alliance with Eurasia as short a time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which in any case might soon be annihilated. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into his. Uh, uh, it, it, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past? Ran the party slogan. Controls the future. Who controls the present? Controls the past. Uh, which just screamed, you know, internet, uh, Wikipedia, uh, all that stuff. All these, all these digital sources that we all appeal to all the time. Um, and it's it's not by accident that in the very beginning of the book, uh, Winston begins uh, writing a journal, um, obviously secretly, but um, ideas put down on on paper really do last. So keep keep a journal, people. That's one of the lessons I'm learning from 1984. I feel like I've heard that exact like quote being used like by the people that are propagating that mentality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Like not just people calling out 
bad mm. mentality, but people that actually believe that to promote it. Yeah. 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 But their view of history is like the past 50 years. Mm. Yeah. And well, I have opinions about this, but I'll, past 15 I'll keep minutes. quiet about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Basically, short-sighted. history began maybe at the end of World War II. Maybe. You mean 1619 or whatever? Oh, that's so long ago. But that's just like a dot in history. Yeah. It's like an island that you deal with in the past. Yeah. So. Yeah, if it didn't affect us today, then we wouldn't even talk about it. But actually, all of history is was was uh, grounded in 1619, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, I did <laughs> want to mention uh, the book I'm going to read next, and I'm really excited about it. It's going to be my whodunit. I love Agatha Christie, and I love Dorothy Sayers. I think all the best uh, mystery writers are women. But I'm going to read The Red House Mystery next for my whodunit. Written by A.A. Milne. <gasps> what? Uh, so, the author of Winnie the Pooh wrote a murder mystery. And I'm going to read that. It has a dead man on the cover. <laughs> yes, it has a dead man on the cover. And it says A.A. Milne on this copy, author of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> I'm super excited about that one. Could that have inspired the uh, the Winnie the Pooh horror movie that's supposed to be coming out, Blood and Honey? I didn't even oh think about that. What? But probably. That'd be amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited about this one. Uh, you, think I was... you, you think you know a person. <laughs> None of us really know anyone. I wouldn't want to ruin Winnie the Pooh like that. <laughs> I would. I don't, I, I don't care. <laughs> I would love to. I hope it takes place in a hundred acre wood. <laughs> Christopher Robin. Well, like a hundred ac yeah, acres of corpses. <laughs> the red house is like owl's place. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing a bad, I'm, I'm doing my normal bad behavior of like reading multiple books at the same time. Cause one of the things I was going to do was read one book at a time, do like a book a month or whatever. Uh, and I'm not doing that. Uh, I failed so epically. So uh, I, after finishing uh, part one for our book discussion, I did break out uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I think is going to be my medieval because I want to read uh, The Temple uh, by George Herbert as my poetry collection. And so I, I don't want to count this as poetry. Uh, I also don't want to count it as an inkling either. So I think I'm going to go uh, medieval for this. That's my goal. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I had I had completely forgotten the like, um, the the strange like stanza structure, where you've kind of you got like the Anglo-Saxon rhythm thing going, and then there's like the little quatrain at the end. Yeah, it's a w weird little blend that I really enjoyed. So I'm about a I'm about a quarter through that. So that's uh, that's good stuff. Are white are uh are we ready for the Silmarillion? Let's go. So this this uh, next chapter is uh of the coming of the elves and the captivity of Melkor. Um which I I I took issue with the chapter title because it, it feels kind of like burying the lead a little bit. But you know the, the taking it with Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it feels like the captivity of Melkor should be should be getting front front and center uh, attention there, but uh, just me. Maybe I'm thinking too modernly. Although, uh, you know, as we've seen in all the chapters prior, all of the Valar are really stoked for the coming of the children. So maybe it's uh, fair to the Valar perspective. And the only reason he's captured is because of that. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of spoilers. There's some steps in between. Actually, yes. I uh, I want to talk about that because there was a, a quote right at the beginning of the chapter that really struck me as I was reading it. 
and um so, so as as it begins um the the valar uh have held are holding council um and okay. yavana and in arome have have news that they've brought um of course arome definitely has uh has intel cuz he's he's riding nahar through through uh middle earth constantly um he's probably the scout of of the valar at this moment and has is the most in touch with what's going on on the ground um so uh so they said ye mighty of arda the vision of iluvatar was brief and soon taken away so that maybe we cannot guess within a narrow count of days the hour appointed Yet be sure of this, the hour approaches, and within this age our hope shall be revealed, and the children shall awake. Shall we then leave the lands of their dwelling desolate and full of evil? Shall they walk in darkness while we have light? Shall they call Melkor Lord while Manwe sits upon Taniquetil? And I'm, I'm going to read the Tulkas part, of course, because he has to get his time too. And Tulkas cried, Nay, let us make war swiftly. Have we not rested from strife over long? Is not our strength now renewed? Shall one alone contest with us forever? It's a very Tulkas quote right there. I love it. I I was I was intrigued by how open of a, of a discussion they were having about this this obvious problem of of Melkor's deeds in Middle Earth. Um, cause I know there, there have been attempts to, to fight him before in, you know, the whole, the face of, of Arda was, um, was disfigured by, by, by those conflicts. Um, and it seems now to me that, that Yvonne is basically, you know, asking for a world war, you know, uh, essentially, um, so what what do we think should they have or maybe a better way to ask it is what would have happened if they had said no we're not going to do anything about Melkor and, and let the children figure it out for themselves as in like we we've already fought our fight with him uh let the chips fall where they may I think Melkor probably would have subjugated them <laughs> <laughs> all of them they didn't, they don't they didn't really have a way to fight him yeah it's so like he he was the strongest individual vala and i think the thing that the thing that the valar never really did they were always going after him in single combat you know usually tulkas versus melkor um but they never really took advantage of the fact that all of them together would be stronger than him individually but there's never like a united effort among the valar to to attack melkor at, at his base or 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 really oppose him in some sort of in some sort of direct fashion it's either like a one-on-one -on -one combat or just like battles of influence or something and i always wondered why why tolkien never wrote in like a war because like they would be they would be the people to fight that kind of war well that's what this chapter is right <laughs> kind of they, they go to war against him or well, like yeah not a war to end all wars no. anyway but it changes things it doesn't yeah. a war you know you can't just have a war and then like everything's peaceful and great afterwards like it changes things i mean even like world war one they still have like these massive holes from where like bombs blew up you know in france and everything like it changes the landscape that's foreshadowing mm -hmm. to something later <laughs> mm -hmm. uh but it it changes things and so they're it's not like uh you know all good like let's say they could do it perfectly fine <clears throat> um it doesn't doesn't just mean same world with no consequences the other thing is right before this it's talking about this the the folks that um that melkor has around him turning into uh well presumably winged balrogs and things like that and or were they 
um, but uh, uh, the evil is is physically changing these beings. And I'm wondering if, you know, I, I'm assuming Tolkien believed in evil as kind of like a privation of good. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if this physical change is also making them somewhat weaker as well. And so, you know, if your enemy is getting weaker just by, you know, indulging in their own evil, then do you just wait? Um, you know, there there are reasons to... <laughs> War is unpleasant. And there are reasons to not do, to not go to war. We found our episode title here, ladies and gentlemen. You're, but that's true. In, in war, war among demigods is is just as unpleasant as human against human war is, just just exponentially worse. Well, and I think it's interesting that. They don't actually deal with Melkor right away. They wait. They wait till they hear of them. And I don't know. It is, it is an interesting question, I guess. I think it, to me, it just speaks to Tolkien's acknowledgement of the presence of evil and kind of that, you know, the tug of war between good and evil and in many ways, the explanation as to why uh, the children of Iluvatar will fall, you know, because there's that influence, which we see later in the same chapter of evil mm-hmm. on the elves. I don't know. I just, I, I, do, I do think that's interesting that they don't take care of it right, right away. They just kind of, it almost felt like Monway was just kind of like, oh, wait and see, give them some stars. I don't know. <laughs> and you know it, it, he's had to search the music before for answers and so maybe you know it doesn't say here but maybe he was searching the music you know because I, I have a feeling that the the Valar actually don't have the ability to fully take out one of their own um, so like they jail him for a while but they still well I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything but they jail him uh, but I don't think the Valar have have the right to to unalive one of their own uh because in the music to go back to the music of the of the Ainur at the very beginning in Ainulindale um Melkor's discordant melody is part of the music mm-hmm. and to to completely eliminate Melkor would irreparably damage uh, the music of of Eru. Yeah, the fates are tied together. Yeah, it's kind of so a it's like it, Tolkien's okay. not being a very good uh, Roman Catholic and is kind of getting a little bit Calvinist on us. <laughs> He's done it before, and he'll do it again. I know. Yeah, because he was a closet Calvinist. We know it. Well, then there's that some somewhat of an element too that kind of Norse, and I wouldn't say even somewhat a lot of that Norse mythology. Um, you don't really see. I'm not like super familiar with North Norse mythology, but there's not a lot of like good versus evil necessarily. Like there are good and bad, but it's like it's it's complicated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's much more complicated than that, and so there's that kind of tension there. And I think Tolkien acknowledges a more dis- distinct line, obviously, between good and evil. But he he likes to leave that tension there. Well, and that's that's kind of the enduring problem of the problem of evil, too. Um, you know, we can have good explanations for um, the presence of evil in the world and the 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 supremacy of the holy god who who can't look at evil um because evil is ultimately used for the for the glory of god in in being subverted by the good uh um you know we, we see that through through the gospel it's the whole the whole um 
crimson thread of redemption through the Bible is all about good triumphing over evil. Um, but evil is used in that passage as the foil for the good. Uh, um, in a, <laughs> you have to touch the darkness in order to see the light. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I couldn't even deliver the line without it with a straight face. Doggone it. I hate that show. Oh man. That seems like you like it. You quote it pretty often. <laughs> it's it's for the bingo game, okay? <laughs> Somebody's gotta do it. Uh okay, but I'm gonna get myself back on track. But um one of the one of the pieces of of Middle Earth lore that isn't it's not exactly canon, but there is an eschaton to uh, to Middle Earth, and it's a it is a final battle. So so like like in Narnia where you have a final battle, but there's a final battle in um, in the Legendarium as well. Um, it, it 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 hasn't really been well explained, and a lot of people debate at whether this is actually canonical. But um, Tolkien theorized a battle that he called the Dagger Daggerath. Uh, which is basically it's a lot like uh, like a Ragnarok kind of a of a of a scenario, uh, but uh, Melkor is done away with, um, and he's actually killed. Uh, spoiler alert by uh, um, by our boy Turin Turambar, uh, who we'll talk about later. One of the darkest things that I think Tolkien ever wrote. Um, a very tragic hero. Um, but in his conception family, of, man. yeah, yes, keeping it in the family, all in the family. Uh, so yes, um, but but so yes, yeah, so so Melkor does kind of get what's coming to him, but he gets what's coming to him at the hand of the children of Iluvatar, not not by one of the Valar, uh, not not by uh, a Maiar spirit, uh, at, at the hand of. Not not an elf, but a man, which I think really, really suits the story. So anyway, uh, Mel Melkor does get his eventually. Um, and also, I, I like just, to think that the dagger dagger uh, daggerath is uh, is part of the canon. That it's in my head canon. So I well, there's a star that forebodes the last battle. So he's definitely yeah. thinking of that. And. The elves, this is their thing. They they don't want to give the people credit, you know. They're like, oh, the men, they're weak. They just die. <laughs> Clearly, they're trying to avoid it. The latecomers, uh, yeah, they want to keep yeah. the world rolling. Yeah, there's kind of like that. We're talking about it, like a little bit of that wheat and tares kind of element here, you know, where they don't really want to fully deal with the evil because. The children of Iluvatar are there. Mm -hmm. You don't want to mess that up. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a bit of that mm -hmm. flavor. Um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think it's interesting, too, where uh, Manwe, he says, moreover, it is the doom that the firstborn shall come in the darkness. I don't know how he knows that. I don't know. I, I, I think he, I think he's up there on the top of Taney Quetil just playing the music on repeat all the time. Okay. I think that's why we don't see him. I think he's up there. He's got the record player going, <laughs> listening to the music constantly about and figuring out what what he's supposed to be doing next. Mm. That's that's my theory. Uh, and, and then he sends out the Eagles to, uh, you know, to keep things off the margins, basically. That's that's my theory. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that quote because that's there's something there that uh, I think is unique to to Tolkien's work. I've never heard anybody say things this way, but um, when we hear the word doom, we're normally thinking of like the downfall of a person or like sure destruction of a society or or whatever, like or the death of someone like they have. This, per, you know, um, uh, the Emperor Nero met his doom, you know. Um, but I, I think I think that word gets used uniquely in, in Tolkien, almost as if uh, doom could be a stand in for the word maybe destiny or uh, or sure outcome, 
it doesn't necessarily mean to death, but um, I don't know if there's like a historical background to the use of that word. I got you there. <laughs> I figured you would. Uh, so it's judgment. Um, it's it's not. I wouldn't use destiny. I would use judgment because it is like a person coming down and saying it. So that's the old old English. Um, or like decree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like they're saying, oh, you know, this is just, you know, it's supposed to happen this way. Like they're saying this is the way it's going to happen. Luvatar has already made this judgment. I mean, we could say the same thing about like, you know, Jesus coming back. The second mm -hmm. coming is doom. It's doomed. Yeah. But it's like a good one. Yeah. Uh, for like a you for catastrophe me, for some people, it's good, I guess. Some people, it's not for me, it's good. I'm yes. pro, yes, I'm I'm pro return. The second you can put me on record, yeah. Uh, but I that, that's it's it's old English, middle English, it's judgment. Um, <clears throat> but then it's just kind of since then, it's just like just bad judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, but even still, there's that personal element to it. Like a person mm -hmm. is, or a person is passing judgment, is, is saying this. It's not just destiny, like like in a Disney movie or something, where it's like, oh, it's destiny. Like, I mean, it's a, a being has said that it's going to happen. A being that is a judge in some way. Well, and in that Taliesin book that I'm reading, that's what I was saying. I'm seeing some correlation there is that you have like the druids you know not pronouncing doom in a bad way but they'll just be like that's your that's your doom like that's what's going to happen and it wasn't in a negative way so i was surprised to read that there because i had encountered it here in tolkien where i had to get it get over my that connotation of something bad because you're like oh he's doomed like it's going to be bad like, no, that's just like your fate, kind of, you know, like you said, judgment, but it's kind of like that. Yeah, decreed like their, their burden. Yeah. But it could be good, like it could be you're going to be a king. That is your doom. Mm -hmm. That's that would sound that sounds bad to us, I think, just because we only use the word in the negative way. But it, I'm glad, it definitely I'm glad wasn't. you said burden, Zach, because that's kind of like the the prophetic word like uh, if you read the old testament prophets they'll often it depending on the translation you read i suppose but they'll often say burden like it's my it's uh I, i'm delivering this burden uh mm -hmm. direct from god it's it's a very similar thing and and to go back to somerillion here it's not it's not a mistake that the person who declares this as doom is mandos who basically is the, the doomsman of the valar He's he's like essentially a judge, right? Because he he has a he has a prison, um, he has his own chamber where people come, uh, where where entities come and and receive decisions. So well, he it's would kind of like that ruling throne too, because like historically, I mean, kings were judges, mm -hmm. and that was one of their main capacities was to make judgment. So he's kind of like a king. King Mandos. <laughs> On his mountain of Tanny Quiddle or whatever. I've heard it said so many different ways. Yeah, my really my version's Tanny Quetil, but I don't know if that's actually proper or not. I, I've heard a lot of uh, pronunciations of, of the place where the elves wake up as well. Hmm. Which one do you go with? I say Quee VNN. Yeah. Sounds good. I'm in. <laughs> I don't know Elvish, so I can only I can only go on what I see. What are you doing with your life? I should I should have spent less time learning Spanish and more time learning Elvish. Absolutely. More useful. Yeah, way more useful. I'm just glad it wasn't uh, Noldor and Quenya, because then that was right out. Since you mentioned stars earlier, I think was Maddie. Was that you that mentioned the the stars? Uh, 
I thought it was really interesting. Of course, we know like so we've already been told that the elves love stars. And I don't you know, again, it's not by accident that we get a a description of stars before the the waking of the of the children, um, the first children. And uh, did did any did did any of these uh, stars and or cons- constellations sound uh, familiar to anyone? Ryan's in there. Mm-hmm. Ryan. Ryan with the is with the um, shining belt. With the shining belt, Menel Mal- Menel Makar. Yeah, I, I know Elvish perfectly. <laughs> uh, so that's definitely Orion because he's got a shining belt, which is probably at least to me, the most recognizable constellation, unless you're looking for dippers. Yeah. Yeah. The I had actually heard before, I'm probably saying it wrong, the Vallis Circa or something, the sickle was mm-hmm. likely the Big Dipper. Mm-hmm. That's what I heard too. Because it looks like, it can look like a sickle instead Which of Which is a, a fun play spoon. on it, I think. I, I like the aggressiveness of that. That's way cooler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine thinking it's a sickle instead of a spoon. I don't know. The valor is going to cut you down. <laughs> it could be a fish hook too, then, right? <laughs> it could be a lot of things. It's really it's an earring. <laughs> like many constellations, it's not really well defined. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is one one of the have... more straightforward ones, though. Yeah. Because yeah. it's just the points. Like the other ones that are like, that's eh, a bear. You're like, four stars maybe yeah ryan's belt i can always get yeah it looks like a belt it's well it's three dots but it kind of looks like a belt uh and i always wonder if like the um the fact that we have so much light pollution uh if we can't see some of the the depth to constellations that probably they did a long time ago. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, well, and stuff is moving too. So. Well, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> There's one other, and I I don't know if this is official or not. I should have looked this up to see if this is real, but um, it's also mentioned that um, a star named Tintale, uh, the Kindler. Uh, was also called Elantari by the elves afterward, which was queen of the stars. But then there's Carnil, Luinil, Nanar, Lumbar, Alcarinque, Elamide. Uh, I think that's the Pleiades. That's seven mm-hmm. stars. I don't know if that's official, but the fact that they're all mentioned together in the Pleiades has been a a a, a, a pretty prominent constellation. Uh, for a long time, uh, the Pleiades is mentioned in the Bible, even, um, and so uh, that that was that was one that stood out to me. That I I it wasn't immediately obvious, and I haven't heard anybody talk about it before in Tolkien studies. But uh, as far as prominent constellations go that contain seven stars, it's got to be it. So I think yeah, I, we've actually been looking at the like we don't have a telescope or anything. We did, and we don't anymore, but been looking we've had clear enough skies that we've been able to see the stars a lot lately and i've been feeding my animals at night so i just go out there and stare at the stars and you can actually i finally know how to find the pleiades now because it's like that little it almost looks like a little star cloud Mm -hmm. yeah they're so close together you're like what is that little like tuft of light out there and like oh it's the pleiades you almost kind of have to like not look directly at it but look like next to it and you can kind of tell that it's something different than just one star that's how yeah. I've always spotted it. It was like I could just kind of see it out of the corner of my eye if I look in the right place. I'm like, oh, that's got to be it. Because it is like it's it's like hazy. Yeah, it's kind of it's like fuzzy. I have bad eyesight. OK, Zach, the stars are shifty. <laughs> <laughs> always. They're always right. in the corner of your eye. <laughs> that's a i don't know it's been something that's been really fascinating just thinking about how much the stars played a role um in ancient civilizations reading that book mm-hmm. and there's a lot about the stars in there mm-hmm. uh you know recently with christmas and the magi and all that with them looking into the heavens and i just feel like we're so woefully inadequate 
when it comes we look to, to the ground too much. Yeah. We're always looking <laughs> <Our> down. <phones. laughs> yeah. The the C.S. Lewis book, The Discarded Image, uh, is it's a lot about medieval cosmology and mm-hmm. uh, and about the stars which they believed were like basically angels moving around mm-hmm. and doing things. And the reason why like medieval astrology wasn't as crazy as modern astrology is because they thought that it was angels actually like doing things and that <laughs> these stars had wills and personhood and were actually doing things. Now, I mean, we know that they're big balls of gas and still kind of believe that their position has some kind of effect. Uh, so modern astrology is sillier than medieval astronomy. Uh, you can put me down for that. They're still silly. They're both silly. Well, but, and yeah, one of the I think one of the greatest discoveries um, is 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 seeing the pattern in in the way that the stars move, and and part of the whole reason for constellations um, isn't necessarily to it, it really wasn't to tell fortunes the way people do now, but um, it, in a very real sense, it was uh, it was to mark the significance of the passage of time. <laughs> Speaking Good of one. the significance <laughs> of the passage of time, <laughs> do you mind if I read a, a little bit? Please uh, do. From this is from the Silmarillion. <laughs> cool. Uh, from the chapter of the coming of the elves which is the one that we've been talking about for a little while now. Yeah. Um, So this is after the elves wake up and see all those stars. Uh, It says, um, in the changes of the world, the shapes of lands and of seas have been broken and remade. Rivers have not kept their courses. Neither have mountains remained steadfast. And to to Kui, how did you say it? Kui Venon? Kui Venon. Kui Venon. There is no returning. It is said that among the elves that it lay far off in the east of Middle Earth and northward, uh, and it was a bay in the inland sea of Helkar, and the sea stood where aforetime the roots of the mountains of Iluen and before and had been before Melkor overthrew it. And so the elves don't even know where they first woke up and saw those stars. Um Time has shifted everything. The, the, um, just the world changes, and I think that, <laughs> I mean, it is really the significance of the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Like we, things change a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, for a being that doesn't die, they probably see quite a bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even I think back. I have like that nostalgic thing, like, oh, I would love to go back to, like, I go back to my hometown mm-hmm. and it's completely different. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not 1990s South Florida and I don't think it ever will be again. Thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, so we, we experienced that in a small scale, but, you know, these elves, they can't even remember where they were born. Mm-hmm. I know, I know where I was born, West Palm Beach. <laughs> but but they can't even remember um why do you think they love the stars so much right it's the only constant they have in all their long years on on the earth they can look up and and see that all the stories from from the very beginning are there uh the land is different you know they, they've they move all through um all through Aya, um yeah. and the only constant is is what's up above well what's cool about that is i mean this part just like screamed garden of eden to me absolutely (laughs) i mean obviously there's a lot of similarities Mm -hmm. there with being in the east Mm -hmm. and the rivers that were flowing down from it in the east there's a lot of the east and that naming things yeah naming Naming things things. yeah are they speaking with voices yeah (laughs) Yes, a lot living of living a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that was you just maybe have a cool thought because I was thinking Garden of Eden and and they had the stars. Take credit that... for my cool thought. It's fine. <laughs> you guys had a cool thought. <laughs> um, 
you know, it makes me wonder, like, are we seeing the same same stars that Adam and Eve looked at? I mean, unless you're like one of those like water canopy people. I don't know. I feel like not me, but I know they exist. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. They they just, add, they add cool color to, to the world for their existing. So I'm grateful for them. <laughs> I don't well, know. Can't you just... have both. Yeah, I can't have both. Um, I I I definitely think I definitely think we do see the same stars because um, Job Job alone mentions stars that we can go out and, and reliably point to right now. Yeah, um, including Orion. Orion. Yeah, and the Pleiades. As long as you as long as you're in the right season to see Orion, I I should say, you can't see right. him all year round. But yeah. But how cool, even though the earth has changed, the sky, obviously, space has largely stayed the same. The final you stare into the sun, that's the same one that God created. Yeah. Don't look <laughs> yeah. at it too long. Yeah, try not to stare. I need to put a little disclaimer. Do not stare into the sun. <laughs> Go get those Brian special Regan has a bit on that. <laughs> Yes, there. the one with the, like his brothers. They would compete how long you could stare. Five seconds. Five <laughs> seconds on the sun stare. That reminds me when I when I was little, my dad took me out to go see a a solar eclipse. Oh, so and I, cool! I just, and I just remember being like, I looked straight up at the sun. He's like covering my eyes, like, no, don't stare. But which is funny too. I'm totally digressing, but it cracks me up every time there's a solar eclipse. In my like farm groups, people will like ask how to cover their animals' eyes, <laughs> and I'm like, they'll literally people like lock their animals in a barn. Like one girl like put like a bra over her horse's face oh so that God. it couldn't see. I'm like, you do realize your horses aren't trying to look at the solar e eclipse, mm -hmm. right? Like that's <laughs> the only reason you have to wear eye protection. <laughs> it's not like it's, anyways. Very much too. They're not as stupid as we are. <laughs> I was gonna say people are a very special species. We're the ones that look at the stuff you're not supposed to look at. <laughs> we don't know our place. It's the influence of Melkor. Let me stare at it. Let me try. <laughs> Although I will say the the eclipse that happened there in uh, in over uh, it like the the peak was like over Kentucky or whatever there a few years ago. Uh, I was working in Cincinnati at the time, and I did look up at the thing without the glasses on. For a little bit Ooh. and i lived is that why um, you're wearing glasses now yeah that's very metal <laughs> <laughs> my prescription had to change a little bit after that <laughs> <laughs> i did put I, I put the glasses on then and, and looked at it more fully but you should have claimed that it healed your eyes oh i should have like yeah yeah you raw, raw spared my eyes <laughs> the sun god I'm curious what you, what to get us back on track since I got us off track. <laughs> uh, what do you think the significance of not the passage of time? I thought we were going to but... get a third one in this episode. <laughs> I really did. Kind of in a way. Uh, how it says the many waters flowed down thither from the heights in the east. And the first sound that was heard by the elves was the sound of water flowing and the sound of water falling over stone. I, I wept when I read <laughs> I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever read. It, it just it makes me think of those like YouTube videos, like the relaxing, oh. like <laughs> water sound videos. Yeah. For like 10 hours long of just like yeah. soft chimes and water flowing. Hey, we listen, we listen, we have a a, a Google hub thing it's like an alexa but it's google it's um, my device yeah it's, it's more yes. directly connected to the cia that's right and i don't care because whatever <laughs> but we my wife and i listen we tell it to play ocean sounds every night so it's like a it's just waves just <laughs> like, it's great it's awesome so it that'd be make, a good thing to wake up to. Yeah. It would make me have to get up too many times in the night and go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. 
That would I would think that would be your problem, Grandpa. <laughs> oh darn it! The motion waves hit me again. No, no. <laughs> Got to get to the outhouse. No, it's, it's relaxing. You can't even not... hear him. <laughs> what? <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> Say that a little louder. Won't you come over here and say that to my face? Thinking, <laughs> um, thinking about those water sounds, it, it was it was another Garden of Eden connection for me because of where the we get the description of the of the waterways coming together at Eden. So it it would have been it would have been uh, I think a probably a pretty interesting uh, uh, audio experience to be to be there and hear hear all those waters. So it just it just felt like another Edenic parallel to me, and and also just just dang peaceful. You know they 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 wake up they see the stars and the that like innate comforting feeling of having water nearby. Um, the things they needed were right there, and they're with each other. You know, they they wake up as on mass on the beach there at Quivian and. Um, apparently, I I I actually did I did some research. I didn't see it in the text here, but, um, it was said by, by several YouTubers, uh, who knew what they were talking about. Apparently that, that the number of elves that woke up at Quivienen was 144. I don't know if that has any special Tolkien significance, but obviously it's a scaled down version of, of a number out of revelation, which I thought was interesting instead of 144,000. With going back to the water sound, it says like we're talking about rivers and we're talking about them falling onto rock, and then we assume that it's already like this peaceful thing. But big waterfalls are not a peaceful, calm noise, in my opinion. Is it uh, a waterfall? Would, like a big waterfall isn't. The little one is. I mean, it says many waters flowed, and we're talking about like rivers and stuff. That that's like a loud noise, like really kind of almost deafening. I went to uh, a few years ago. I went to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and they have the actual falls there. They look like it's like a river of chocolate milk coming down. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> but it was very impressive and loud. Like mm-hmm. having to, you know, hey, what are you doing? Like to, to the kids, and they're like two feet away. Mm-hmm have to yell so maybe it's just that they're far enough away that it can sound peaceful or something but it could also be just loving that powerful sound as well well, well there's something it's a soothing. voice yeah i, I think they're, they're getting their their first taste of of voices at that point um every, everything in arda has a voice um Especially, yeah, according according to Tolkien, who's very language and and speech related. So, you know, they, they wake up hearing this this perhaps very loud speech of waters. Um, maybe some of the inspiration for them to to be the ones marked by speaking with voices. The spitballing. Sorry, what were you saying, Maddie? Oh, it's just I we had a ton of rain this. Well, it's still raining, actually. I think it's currently raining, but we had a ton of rain on Sunday. And uh, we have a creek, like kind of a seasonal creek that runs by our house, but it was just flowing. And I just spent a lot of time out there yesterday just kind of listening to the water. Even though it was kind of loud, like Nick said, if you got real close to it from a distance, it was just very peaceful. And I don't know, really enjoyed it. I felt very nature-y. So maybe the... <laughs> The elves are feeling naturey as well. They're very naturey <laughs> as a people. So so naturey. <laughs> I'm gonna get a book deal pretty soon <laughs> from my expert analysis. The natureiness of elves. That'll be the next the next <laughs> Tolkien volume. Oh, any 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 other big thoughts before we kind of wrap up this episode? War is unpleasant. War, war is unpleasant. I'm so that's that is kind of the theme of this uh, episode so far. So yeah, 
Well, thank you all very much for uh, for joining us and for listening in wherever uh, you are in Middle Earth. And uh, uh, until until next time, may may Monway keep you in the one and peace out. And this is the part where we in edit where I just cut it off. I, I, I bring the Valakirka in there and I cut the audio. And then we start again. Are you going to actually cut it and start again? Heck yeah. I'm going to take a video. I'm just going to chop the crap out of my computer.